This episode is brought to you by the generous support of LawPay, a Texas member benefit provider. Getting paid just got a lot easier. Check them out at LawPay.com. That's LawPay.com for more details. And now, on to the show. Welcome, everybody, to the State Bar of Texas podcast. We are recording in person here at the 2022 annual meeting in Houston, Texas. This is your host, Rocky Deer. Now, joining me today, we have Corbin Addison. Welcome to the show, Corbin. Thank you so much, Rocky. Now, Corbin, you've got you've got quite a story, and I know. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do part of your job here, which is to say you're not only a a lawyer, you're also a best-selling author. So, tell us a little bit about your background. You were you were a lawyer, and then at some point. You started writing something other than a legal brief, and it, and it exploded. <laughs> yeah, right, so. exactly. Well, it was actually before uh, I even went to law school that I was starting to try my hand at telling stories, um, and so it was honestly always the thing that I hoped I'd end up getting to do, but I was smart enough to get a real job first. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I loved the law, and so I went to UVA and graduated, wrote actually a couple of manuscripts while I was in law school. Uh, which as is a, a one L, crazy. as yeah. a one L, you as did this. As a one L and a three L, yeah. Wow. Okay. Except I got married in between, and my wife actually made sure that I kept my grades up on the second try. My one L grade slid, as you can imagine. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I was a little crazy to try that, um, but yeah, in the three L, it worked out better. Kept my grades up. Sure. Wrote another book. Nobody wanted it. So it took some time. <laughs> took some time to find a book that somebody wanted to publish. I uh, actually took about ten years, and, right. and ultimately, my wife gave me an idea for a novel about a justice issue, human trafficking, back this back in 2008 when it wasn't very well known. Sure. Uh, and that led to my first novel. Um, and so I wrote novels for a while about different international issues uh, and then ultimately landed on this story. And people had been telling me for a while to write nonfiction because my fiction already read like it. And I told them, look, give me a story that I could write as compellingly as a novel, and I'd be happy to tell it. So I was fortunate with this book that it landed in my lap through a friend, and it's a true story that I was able to tell in a way that really reads like my fiction, and yet it's 100% true. Now, let's let's tell them what this story is. Yes. That's Wastelands. Wastelands. Okay, so, but your first your first book was, was that A Walk Across the Sun? A Walk Across the Sun, that's correct. And yeah. that was, so... All your work so far has been fiction. This is your first piece of nonfiction. That's correct, yes. All right, so what, I, I, know, I know we want to read the book, and we want to get the full story there, but tell us generally what was, what was the story, or what's the backdrop in Wastelands, and what was it about the story that kind of caught your attention? And yeah, just say, sure. oh, I'm, I'm going I'm to write several hundred pages on this. So. Yeah, right. I mean, it was, it was one of those things where I, January 2019, I'm working on something else, and a buddy of mine calls me up, and I always take his calls. He's a fellow author. Yeah. And he said, you know, I've got this crazy story for you. It might be your next book. It's about hog farms in North Carolina mm. and this big lawsuit that's been going on down there. And the woman who's behind it, the Mona Lisa Wallace, the, the lead lawyer who sort of assembled the cases, she's from my hometown in Salisbury. And so Salisbury, You sound like North Greg Carolina. Grantham, and she sounds like Darby Shaw. This is like the Pelican <laughs> Brief all yeah, over again. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> the real-life version. Yes, truly. It, it's, it's such a crazy story. And really, when he first told me about it, I thought, hog farms? Like, right. that's really not a subject I think I would ever <laughs> want to touch. I mean, really, like, who's going to want to read about that? But the more I listened, and then ultimately I agreed to, you know, reach out to Mona and talk to her. And she was so winsome and told me this crazy story that was truly kind of wilder than any fiction I could have imagined. But it was a true story about a great big lawsuit. And I'm a lawyer, you mm -hmm. know, by training and love great cases. Sure. And I love the drama of the courtroom. And it sounded to me like, wow, you know, actually, 
this could be a true life legal thriller, like a civil action, which basically was one of the reasons I went to law school in the first place. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, one thing led to another. I went to the fifth federal trial, the last of the federal trials, and saw Mike Kesky, her trial counsel, uh, in give his two-hour-plus opening, and it was utterly riveting, the best courtroom presentation I've ever seen in my life. I knew, you know, immediately that this was a story that was worthy of being told, but I got to meet the neighbors. And really, like, the story is about the way that the modern hog industry, which raises millions of hogs in North Carolina inside of, you know, these confined animal, uh, concentrated animal feeding operations inside of barns. Right. They have to deal with the waste of all these animals. The average Mm. hog produces five times the waste of human beings, and they have dealt with it in the cheapest way possible by putting it in big pits in the earth open to the air and the floodwaters, and then by spraying it out onto fields. And, you know, they've not really taken into account the fact that the neighbors who were there for generations wouldn't necessarily love it. So the the whole issue is the neighbors brought suit in nuisance Mm -hmm. against the biggest hog, uh, you know, industry player in the world, Smithfield. Um, So once I met some of the neighbors, met the trial team, I was like, you know, this is a compelling story. And I think I could this might be the one that takes me into nonfiction. Got it. Okay, so. So, so you came across this really by happenstance. It was a friend of yours. It who, was. It was just a phone call. Crazy. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So thankful for it, truly. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. So let's maybe step back a little bit to talk about being an author. Because I think, yeah. you know, if there's if there's one profession that a lot of lawyers want to get into, you know, they say, well, I'm a lawyer. And if I wasn't a lawyer, I'd want to be X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Right. Number one might be real estate tycoon, but (laughs) other than that, other than that, you know, author comes up a lot and there's this whole question of how do you, how do you become a published author? You know, in, in your case, you know, what, what was it? Obviously you want to write a good story, but then how do you get that story out to people? It's hard. I mean, I, I, I've never pulled punches in telling people that I've seen the very best and worst of publishing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the sort of industry that's made to reject you. Right. Uh, and, you know, getting a book published, especially these days, is more challenging than ever. I mean, unless you're going to self-publish. But if you want to get somebody else to pay you for it, it's harder than ever. And really, it requires persistence on a level you almost have to become heroic <laughs> right. to persist and take rejection after rejection. I've got a whole drawer full of letters that I got over the years you know, for books that I'd spent thousands of hours writing and nobody cared, nobody wanted to publish them. It required, you know, really 10 years of persistence and then landing finally on a story that people were interested in. And then I still had to climb the mountains of finding a literary agent and then getting the literary agent to find a publisher. And we got, he got many rejections, you know, before (laughs) that. And one thing did help, which was I was fortunate to connect with John Grisham early in my, uh, in my work on A Walk Across the Sun. And he's a really good guy and obviously and phenomenally he's a successful. Too. Right, yeah. yeah. And I, I think, like, he looked at me, young lawyer, aspiring to be an author, thought, you know, I'll take coffee with him, was mm-hmm. kind about that, told him the, the idea I had, 
And he said, look, you know, I'll, I'll take a look at it. And if I like it, you know, I'll share it with some people. He's told this story many times. He expected mm -hmm. never to hear from me again. Got it. You know, nine months right. later, I, I came back to him and said, hey, I got a, I've got a manuscript. Will you read it? Mm. And, and he was kind enough to say yes. Now, and then we went into the dark for four months, and I, did, I truly thought he'd, you know, fed it to the fire. Sure. <laughs> I thought that sure. he hadn't liked it. Yeah. You know, and, and I figured I'd be back to square, square one where I had been before. But then I, out of the blue, and actually I was at a CLE. You know, I was at a, a CLE, I think it was an ethics CLE, and uh, I got an email on a break from him <laughs> out of the blue, and I literally nearly fell over. I called my wife, my best friends, like, it was just like, and John said, I loved your book, can I help you? So he was one who helped me uh, open doors in the beginning, mm -hmm. he gave me a blurb that opened some doors. In the end, I still had to take rejections. Not everybody wanted it right out of the gate. Um, and I've gotten rejections even through the years since then with other manuscripts. I've gotten quite a few of them. This book, Wastelands, was the only time I've had a publisher immediately look, the first publisher looks at it, and it's Knopf. In, in my opinion, like, they're the choice I would have made had sure. I ever, you know, gotten to pick a publisher. They were the first, and they said, we love this, we want it, we'll buy it. Um, so that was fortunate, but I, I've waited 10 years in publishing after 10 years of not being published to get to that point. So it's, it's one of those games. You've got to be super persistent, believe in yourself, keep whacking, keep trying, keep, you know, refining your style, keep believing in yourself. Don't walk away. If you've got a talent, somebody will see it eventually. Th that is both inspiring and discouraging, right? Cause it's <laughs> yeah. like, what? It's that much work. Yeah. You know, maybe I'll just keep practicing law, but what is it about? about, or I guess maybe the question should be different, which is, is there something about legal training that you think prepared you to become both a fiction and a nonfiction writer? And if so, what is it? Because, you know, as, as lawyers, it's easy for us to write in a certain way, yeah. right? We're writing for a court. So is it an advantage? Is it a disadvantage? And if so, you know, how is it an advantage? How is it a disadvantage if you're a lawyer wanting to become an author? It's a really good question. I mean, what I would say is that my legal training has been instrumental in, in being able to understand the world sure. and to be, being able to tell these stories about complex issues of law. So I've, I've said many times, I'm so thankful to be a lawyer. It's opened so many doors for me. It's helped me to understand. I would say that legal writing is very different from storytelling. Absolutely. But... Tell, I mean, every good trial lawyer has to tell a story to a jury, and that's not all that different. I mean, obviously, writing and speaking are different, but storytelling in the courtroom is similar in the sense that you, you've got these people out there that don't know anything about your subject, and they're coming in cold, and they're you know people of average intelligence from across the spectrum, which is exactly like readers. Mm -hmm. Sure. And how would you make your point in the most compelling way. Well, you try to bring it to life. You try to put a face to it. You try to simplify the complex issues. You try to, you know, put together a narrative that holds their attention, that has all of the dramatic elements of a great narrative. So in some ways, I think, like, being a trial lawyer prepares a person for writing, but then you do have to have a kind of stylistic thing. You gotta put some you know, flair into it, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's a diff that is definitely a different style. But the essence of storytelling was something that I think was kind of native to me. Like I just I I kind of I read a lot of books, I read a lot of fiction, a lot of, you know, story driven nonfiction. Sure. I learned from the greats about how to tell stories. 
And, and so I had that style part, but the law really for me informed like how do I understand like these complex battles that play out within the confines of the law whether in the courtroom or in politics or in society. I, I want to get back to Wastelands here in just a minute, but before we do, there's, I, I want you to kind of put your lawyer hat back on yeah. for a moment. I assume you're not practicing. Now that you're a published author, you probably don't practice law anymore. Is that you a know, pretty safe assumption? Well, I mean, it, is, it is a safe assumption, although there are many times I look backward and think, hey, was I the fool? I mean, <laughs> in the sense that, like, you know, my... my uh, Publishing is a very unstable industry to try to be a uh, full-time, you know, try to have a family, pay a mortgage and all that. Right. So there have definitely been highs and lows, uh, feast and famine. It's definitely not as stable as practicing law. And I've, I've often looked back and thought, you know, but then I don't look back very long. I love what I do. So oh, yes, sure, I don't sure. practice anymore. And, and, you know, I think, I think a lot of lawyers love what they do as well. Absolutely. And it's just a matter of finding yep. your passion. Yep. But, you know, now that you've, now that you've written stories, I guess, for lack of a better word, for for more mass consumption. Yeah. Right. Do you do you think we as lawyers need to change the way we write? Hmm. You know, and so like when we're writing for a court, you know, it's it's on or about such and such date, such and such happened. We we write very matter of factly in yeah. our legal briefs. Do you think it's time for us to start maybe adjusting that a little bit and hmm. saying, as lawyers now, when we present our cases to court, when we're writing a legal brief. Do we need to write more in a storytelling format? Would that make it would that make it more compelling, both for the appellate record as well as for the trial judge? Or do you do you think they're really two separate disciplines and they they each have their their lanes in? It's a great question. I think honestly, the answer is you got to know your audience. I mean, I think there are some judges, old school judges, who wouldn't take very well to that. Sure. On the other hand, what I would say is that more and more, especially in big cases with social consequence, your complaint really needs to tell a story because it's going to be read by the media and and it's going to you really need to tell it in a way that an ordinary it might even come into the trial record in one way or another. I've seen that happen. So one thing I would say about the lawyers in Wastelands, um, John Hughes, who works for Mona Lisa Wallace, uh, Wallace and Graham in Salisbury, North Carolina, they, they brought the cases originally. John wrote the first complaints in federal court. And John is a poet. And one of the things, but he's also an intellectual and, and loves the science of, you know, uh, epidemiology. Sure. So his goal with, with writing the complaints was to tell a compelling story as a storyteller, but also to weave in the details of science and history. And so if you read those original complaints, and they went through a couple of different amendments, each one he got a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, he enjoyed himself a little more, I would say. Okay, you know, put more putting more into detail. It. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they, they, they're really compelling reading, you know. Uh, and so I would say I think that with complaints especially, the story's key. But I do think that story is like one of the great, in fact, it may be the most compelling form of communication we have as mm-hmm. human beings. We're all living a story. We all think in terms of story, whether we think about it or not. Mm. So I do think that to the extent that we can include narrative and detail that is useful and relevant, in our communication in any form, in any context, including in the law, I think it is useful. And we could keep talking about that, you know, for ad nauseum. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Emphasis on the nauseum, because we're talking about legal writing. But let's talk for a second now back to Wastelands. Yep. You know, this, I don't want us to give away too much of the story itself, because sure. I think there's it's probably, it's probably more fun to read it and really get immersed into it. 
What do you want readers to kind of come away with, though, when they read it? You know, is there is there an overarching lesson or is there some some thought experiment you want them to do when they're when they put the book down? You know, for you as the author, was there was there a goal to this that you wanted to accomplish? My goal is always twofold to educate as well as entertain. Sure. And and really nonfiction is great for that. I mean, my fiction, I had to work a little harder, um, you know, to have the enlightenment part work. Um, but with nonfiction, it's true. It's happened. It's real. Um, so that, you know, uh, that's part of it. Do you keep yourself objective when you're writing nonfiction or are you looking at it from a particular prism or if you're trying to be objective, how do you stay objective? Because yeah, that's you've got a, your own thoughts, right? It's a good. It's a good point. I mean, honestly, I think objective objectivity is something that is kind of impossible as human mm-hmm. beings. I mean, we all come to the table with our own background, our own stories, right. our own interpretation, our lens. You know, the way we think about the world. I mean, storytellers are no different. Reporters sure. are no different. I think we have to be honest about that out of the gate. Um, you know. At the same time, I do think that I definitely strive to be fair. And uh, if not, I, I don't, balance is one of these weird things. It's like, if something's right, I'll say it. If something's wrong, I'll say it. If it's nuanced, I'll say it. Like I, but I want to be fair to the people. And so even the people who are on the other side of this lawsuit, people that I came to actually really feel they were taking a moral stance that was indefensible, that they might not even be really good people that I would ever want near my children. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be fair to them and I want to treat them as human beings. So really for me, it's much more about, am I telling the story fairly? Am I allowing the people that I might dislike in the story to be human, not just you know one dimensional cartoon villains? Right. That's always the thing for me. It's like, but I do have, I definitely have, I'm an advocate. I mean, I, I believe that there are right, there's right and wrong in the world. I also believe that a lot of life lies in the nuances in between. Mm-hmm. And, and really, we can say things are right and also say they're complex. And say things are wrong and also say it's, they're complex. And that's really what I strive for. Well, it's, you know, just, just in this conversation, I think most listeners could probably divine where, where your sympathies fall sure. on this. You know, ver- the neighbors versus the hog farm. But if you had to, if you had to write the story from the other perspective, have you ever thought and said, okay, how would I write that story? You know, how would I write it from the, and I'm using air quotes for those who can't see it. It's the the villain's perspective. Yeah. You know, how would I write that and make the villain actually the hero? As an author, have you ever sat down and said, could I do that? How do I do that? Yeah. You know, in one of my books, which was on Somali piracy, I had to get into the mind of a pirate. And this was back in, you know, 2000, like the 2018 wave, you know, when that was happening everywhere. And and I did wild research, even went to Somalia uh, under guard in order to get to know Somali people. Wow, okay. So I had to get into the mind of a a pirate and I had to create an anti-hero. That was hard. I mean, honestly, because like I've always strived to have like to stand to try to divine what is right and good and true and stand on that side to the best of my ability but i also recognize life is complex and people are driven very often by incentives into places that present them with existential problems that you know not everyone is able to solve with you know the greatest degree of moral courage i think moral courage is one of the hardest things in the world and and frankly, I don't know, you know, how I would respond if, if, say, for instance, back to Wastelands, 
if I were a former tobacco farmer who sure. in the 1960s was looking for a way to keep my 100-year-old family farm, took a contract from Wendell Murphy, the godfather of the modern hog industry, sure. stayed in that, built the farm, spent all sorts of money, loans, took out mm-hmm. massive debt, millions of dollars in some cases, and, and was raising hogs in this way, would I be willing to tell the truth, even if I was the very best, you know, the cleanest person, they're still hogs, they're still producing five times the waste of the average human being, and I'm trying to manage it using medieval technology with no help from the industry, you know, would I be the person, there was only one hog farmer in all of Eastern North Carolina who was willing to go before the jury against his pecuniary interest and speak the truth. Would I be Tom Butler? Like would I, or would I be much more like all the other ones who, you know, have families and mortgages and mouths to feed and, you know, an economic livelihood to protect, who would just basically say, grumble under my breath like they all do. I mean, Tom has told me this, like all, (laughs) pretty much all hog farmers in one way or another know they're being exploited by the industry, much like sharecroppers, Mm -hmm. but it goes totally against their financial interest to ever admit that. So would I be the one to stand up or would I not be? I mean, I've I've often thought about that and I don't have an answer. I don't think we ever have an answer about whether we'd be the one, you know, on, uh, you know, on that flight on 9-11 that would stand up to the the terrorists, you know, or whatever. We don't know until we're there. Until it happens. Yeah. With Mona Lisa and the neighbors, have you ever talked to them about what happens if you were, if you, if you were the hog farmer, you know, do you, do you think that all of them, and you don't have to name names, but do you think, do you think any or all of them would have done the morally right thing or have had the moral courage that we've talked about? Or would they have now suddenly gone in favor of their pecuniary interests? You know, have you ever had that discussion with any of the neighbors and said, Hey, look, you know, is there another side to this? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, the truth is every single neighbor I ever talked to sympathized with the growers, with the individual hog farmers. It's I mean, the industry that they it's were. It's the industry. Yeah. Okay. And they no, none of them ever asked for the industry to shut down. Most of them eat pork. Most sure. of them had raised pigs on the ground in their own families. I mean, they don't have anything against the hog farms. What they have against the industry is the fact that they've been making billions of dollars over the course of a generation, and they've not been willing to spend a single cent on cleaning up the waste. I mean, they use cesspools that are open to the floodwaters of hurricanes that have poisoned rivers and streams. They they spray that waste out onto fields directly next door to the neighbors. There are solutions that are out there. There's technology that Smithfield even paid for on the order of the state AG in 2000 they came up with technology that would solve the lagoon and spray field system if only Smithfield would pay for it. But Smithfield has proven itself to be the sort of company that would happily pay its lawyers tens of millions of dollars to fight nuisance suits rather than paying for new technology to treat the waste. You know, it really is a question of as humans, we're civilized enough to treat our own waste. We don't use open sewers anymore. We don't use sure. cesspools anymore. We used to in times past, and there right. are places in the world you can still find still them. Still happens, yeah. sure. But when it comes to hogs, Smithfield and the industry has simply chosen to take the money that they make, and they make billions a year, and send it to their shareholders and to their you know, Chinese owners and... That, it, that's really sad. So that's the fundamental problem that personally I have, that, that all the neighbors have. 
there was another hog farmer, I will say, Don, uh, Don uh, Webb, who was actually an early contract farmer who had neighbors who complained, and he, he did the crazy thing. He actually gave up the keys to his hog operation, took the loss, walked away, and became Said, I'm one of the most effective spokespeople in the movement to change the industry over the next 20 years. Well, Corbin, this, this sounds like a, like a fascinating read, and I think... I think folks are going to get a lot out of actually diving into the book. I and hope then, so. And then, it's fun. I mean, that I, I wrote it to be fun. So it's a legal thriller, but it's true. It's a, it's a true legal thriller. That's exactly right? right. Well, well, it does look like we've reached the end of our program. Yeah. So, you know, Corbin Addison, I want to thank you for for being part of this. This is a this is a real pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Now, if if listeners, you know, if they if they have questions, they want to follow up, they want to learn more. First of all, where can they buy the book? And you know, let's let's give them the name of the book again. I know it's Wastelands. Where do they get the book? And is there a way for them to reach out to you if they want to have, have you come on as a speaker or something like that? Yeah, where, where I do mean, they get the great thing is, uh, you know, Random House puts books everywhere. So you can get it, you know, online. You can get it in bookstores. You can get it on Audible. You can, uh, you know, you can get it on your Kindle, um, on devices. It's And, you know, it's, a, it's available worldwide digitally in audio, um, but it's available in North American print. Uh, and I'm at CorbinAddison.com. That's Corbin, C-O-R-B-A-N-A-D-D-I-S-O-N.com. I'd love to hear from people. And I truly hope this is a story that lawyers especially will love. But it's not just for lawyers. It's for everybody. Anybody who loves a great legal drama. I mean, what's more American than a courtroom battle of the ages? With the jury and everybody yep. all, all sitting there. So. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for this episode of the State Bar of Texas podcast, brought to you by LawPay. Thank you again, LawPay. You rock. Also, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcasting app. I'm Rocky Deer. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.